You guys, our world is a mess. <laughs> it really is. Harry and Meghan are mad, like real mad. J-Lo and A-Rod split. Kim and Kanye split. Cardi B is beefing with everybody, I think. So is Takashi 69. But it's not just that, right? Like, insurrectionists stormed the U.S. Capitol this year. Our headlines were filled with race riots this year. Our Facebook and Twitter feeds are littered with the fallout from broken relationships. Many of us can't have a family dinner at all. And then when we do, there are shouting matches and people storming out. Marriages are dissolving and kids are estranged and coworkers are giving you the silent treatment. I mean, our world is filled with misrepresentation, miscommunication, misunderstanding. And frankly, I'm really tired of it. It hurts my heart. I'm, I'm fatigued. It's getting old. The polarization between right and left people arguing on social media, not speaking to family members for an extended period of time. It's, it's getting old. I don't know about you, but it's starting to get to me. I mean, this phrase, can't we all just get along? Some of you remember that. It was a meme before there were memes. <laughs> and I'm not saying that the convictions you have and the values you have and standing up for what you believe in. I'm not saying that that's wrong or bad. What I'm saying is that it's flipping, tearing us apart, and I've had it. I really have. And it's not just those guys out there. It's us guys in here. It's me. It's you. And you might think to yourself, man, I, I'm a contributor to productive, healthy relationships. I have open and honest dialogue with others. I have healed relationships in my life. In fact, they weren't even broken in the first place. I do pretty good at relationships. I get along with people. Can I prove it to you that that might not quite be exactly the case? In his new book, uh, Malcolm Gladwell cites a study. The book is called Talking to Strangers, and it's a very fascinating psychological study. I actually want to try it with you here. Uh, individuals in this study were given words that look like this. Fill in the blanks on that. Just speak it out loud right there where you are. If you're watching with your spouse, your family, what does that word say? It could say glum or glam or glue. Different people, I'm sure, glib. <laughs> There were people I'm sure had you know, different answers to what that word says. How about this one? Is that hater? Is that water? Speak that one out too. How about this one? Is that score or spare or spore? I'm not even sure that's a word. If you said spore, look it up. See if that's actually a Scrabble word. How about this one? Is it tough or touch? Different people, once again, would have different answers. And that's exactly what happened in the psychologist's study. Different individuals who underwent this study had different answers to those words. But here's the trick. They were asked after the study, what do those words say about you? Do they say anything about your personality, about your character, how you filled in those words? What does it say about you? And listen to what those individuals said. 
I'm quoting from Gladwell's book now, and he's quoting from the study. I don't really think that my word completions reveal that much about me. Answer two, they don't reveal a whole lot. They reveal vocabulary. Answer three, I really don't think there was any relationship. The words are just random. Interesting. Just after those individuals gave that answer about themselves, they were given a list of words that a complete stranger filled in, somebody that they had never met before. And just after they answered, it doesn't reveal anything about me. It doesn't say anything about me. It's not really that significant. Listen to what those exact same individuals said when they were asked, what do those words reveal about a complete stranger? What does it tell you about that other person? And I quote, he doesn't seem to read too much. I get the feeling that whoever did this is pretty vain. That person seems goal-oriented and thinks about competitive settings. I have a feeling that the individual in question may be tired very often in his or her life. Listen to what Gladwell said. The same person who said these word completions don't seem to reveal much about me at all, turned around and said of a perfect stranger, and I quote, I think this girl is on her period. He could tell that from just how she filled in 20 words with blank letters. You know why? Because we're judgy. We see ourselves as sophisticated, complex, and nuanced. We see others as simple, easy to interpret. We make judgments about them based on simply how they filled in words. And we would say about ourselves, it doesn't reveal anything about me, but it reveals everything about that other person. I can even tell when they're menstruating. Friends, we're judgy. And we've created entire spaces for our judgment to live. It's called social media. Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, even dating nowadays. <laughs> judge, 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 judge. Okay, judge, judge, judge. That's what we do on Instagram. That's what we do on Facebook. That's what we do on Twitter. We're judgy. The statistics just bear it out. You know what else? We're bad at being present. We really are. We're bad at sitting down across the table from someone else and listening and responding and empathizing and being present. We have arguments in virtual spaces with sound bites and memes and slogans. Friends, these conversations are tender and difficult. Race, and politics, and family, and whatever. They are not meant for social media. We must sit across the table from one another, look one another in the eye, share a meal together, listen, respond, understand, and empathize. And honestly, we're just bad at it. We're just bad at being present. We're bad at listening. This one, I'm not even gonna quote a study. I'm not even gonna quote a study. Think about the last time you got in an argument, let's just say with your spouse. You don't listen. To understand, you listen and 98% of the time you're thinking about your rebuttal, aren't you? You're thinking about how you're going to respond to them and tell them that they're wrong and they saw it differently and, and that you have a different perspective and why your perspective is right or better. 98% of the time you are building your defense while you're listening. Friends, that's not listening. 
That's loading. <laughs> We're bad at self-sacrifice. We're bad at putting ourselves aside in order to hear and understand somebody else. We're bad at this stuff and our world is busted because of it. And it's not just the Hollywood types and J-Lo and A-Rod and Takashi 69 and Harry and Meghan. And those problems are real. Those are relationships and marriages and friendships. Those are real things. It's not just those people out there. Again, it's us in here. Our world is busted. We're bad at relationships and we're bad at the skills that make them healthy and productive. We're bad at it. How long have I been talking? Or ranting, I guess, is what I've been doing. I hadn't mentioned Easter yet, have I? What in the world does this have to do with Easter? All across the world today, pastors just like me will preach a sermon a lot like I've preached before. Jesus was crucified on a hill outside of Jerusalem. They put him in a tomb, rolled a stone over the top of it, and his followers went away sad. He was dead and buried. Two days later, after the Sabbath, a couple of his female followers came to anoint the body once again. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb and the tomb was empty. Following that empty tomb experience, the resurrected Jesus appeared to them and to the disciples and over 500 witnesses, proving the finality of Jesus' claim that he has power over hell, death, and the grave, and that he had conquered and risen, and he has the right and power to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And they will conclude their sermon with 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, and say, and if Christ has not been raised, Paul would write, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The resurrection is the final stamp that says all of this is not in vain. All of it matters. All of it's real. It's the final stamp on our faith. And that's all good and true and wonderful and lovely and life-giving. But listen, friends, the resurrection was never meant as an end. It was meant to be a beginning. The resurrection was meant to be a beginning. It was meant to be a catalyst, a fuse, a match to gasoline. It was not meant to be the final stamp. It wasn't meant to be an end. Rather, it was meant to be a beginning. Let me prove it to you. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, where that verse comes from that we just quoted, and you read Paul's argument there, the entire thing is based on the idea that the resurrection is a beginning, not an end. Capital R, resurrection of Jesus, is a beginning, not an end. Paul calls the resurrection the first fruits, the beginning of the harvest. He says that the resurrection of Jesus points forward to the resurrection of all men. He says that the resurrection of Jesus points forward to a new kingdom. He says that the resurrection of Jesus points forward to us having a new body that is imperishable and powerful and spiritual and glorious and immortal. Go back and read 1 Corinthians 15. This is Paul's argument the entire time, that the resurrection is a beginning and not an end. The resurrection was meant to be a beginning. It begs the question, the beginning of what? Well, it's meant to be the beginning of God's grand redemptive plan. See, new life for Jesus catalyzes new life for all. 
New life for Jesus catalyzes new life for all. The resurrection was like God lighting the fuse and the fuse beginning to burn down to this explosion of grace and new life for all men. It was a beginning, not an end. New life for Jesus catalyzes new life for all. See, this is why Paul talks about his own personal mission in 2 Corinthians verse 5. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In case we didn't get it, Paul repeats himself in verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. So here's the question. What is it that has deteriorated? What is it that's lacking? What's broken in our world? What needs new life, new hope? What needs to bloom once again? Relationships. It's relationships. And the resurrection means hope for broken relationships. Friends, all of this brokenness is a result of sin in our world and it can find hope and healing in the resurrection. And listen, I'm not saying that your conflicts, your social conflicts, your interpersonal conflicts, your family conflicts are unnecessary. I'm not saying they're inevitable. I'm not saying that your convictions and values are wrong. All I'm saying is this, as Christians, we are charged with the ministry of reconciliation. Our job, now that God has in Christ, reconciled the world to himself and resurrected his son. Now that he's done that, he's shoved us out on a mission to be messengers and ministers of reconciliation between God and people and between people and other people. And that's why we're starting this brand new series today called Finding Common Ground. It's a series designed to help you be that type of person. A person who brings restoration and reconciliation and resurrection life to the relationships around you. Because here's the deal. On Easter, we watch the God of the universe do two things. One, he died and raised to new life so that we could be reconciled to God. And two, he provided the model for us to be reconciled to one another. Think about it. On Easter, God was really good at all the things we're bad at. Let me say that again. On Easter, God was really good at all the things we're bad at. Instead of staying in His heaven, God came near in the person of Jesus Christ. He was present. We're bad at that. The Bible says that Jesus is a high priest able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses. You know why? He listened, sympathized, and understood. See, we're bad at that. God poured out judgment on the cross so that He could pour His grace out on us. See, whereas we are judgy, God is gracious. He didn't hold back 
even his own son. But as John 3.16 would say, he gave his one and only son so that he could reconcile the world to himself. See, we're bad at sacrifice. God is good at it. We're bad at being present. We're bad at listening and empathizing. We're bad at seeing something from someone else's perspective, walking a mile in their shoes. We're bad at being gracious because we like to be judgy. We're bad at sacrificing because we love ourselves. God was good at all those things on Easter. He was the best at all those things on Easter. So not only did God come in the person of Jesus Christ and die on a cross at Calvary for you and for me and raise to new life again so that we can be reconciled to Him. But He showed us, He showed us how to be reconciled to one another. That is so, so rich, so extraordinary, so cool, and so life-giving. I want to invite you today to do two things, two things and two things only. Number one, would you join us for the next seven weeks? Including today, so it's just today plus six, really. Would you join us for finding common ground? Because here's the deal, and maybe this is just a personal vendetta for me, maybe this is just a personal passion or whatever, but I'm tired of the busted up relationships, and we can look to God and the person of Jesus and biblical examples in order to learn what it means to be good at relationships. And we, you and me, us, we can be that catalyst for hope and healing and resurrection life in our world. Would you join us? Stick with us. Learn some really practical tools to be that kind of healing presence in your sphere of influence. Here's the second invitation. I plead with you, be reconciled to God. 2,000 years ago, God sent His one and only Son to a manger at Bethlehem. 33 years later, that very same Son, Jesus of Nazareth, was crucified on a hill just outside of Jerusalem for you and for me. And two days later, the tomb that he was buried in was empty. And it was the catalyst for the church. It was the catalyst for God's kingdom come. It was the catalyst for hope and healing and reconciliation. And God has now invited us into that. He says, be reconciled to me and be a minister of reconciliation. So I plead with you, be reconciled to God. Because of the resurrection, he has hope and healing and grace for you. Here's the deal. I'd regret it if I didn't give you the opportunity to accept the free gift of God's grace, to accept what Jesus did on the cross for you, to accept the fact that He rose again to new life and He can forgive your sin. You can be reconciled to God and you can experience new life in Christ. It's a simple prayer. It goes something like this. God, I recognize that I'm a sinner separated from you. I recognize that I'm broken and I'm a contributor to the brokenness around me. And I recognize that that has separated me from you. So I accept Jesus' death in my place. I believe that he rose to new life. God, would you please forgive me of my sin and reconcile me to yourself? Amen. It's that simple. No magic words, <laughs> no script no class to go to or hoops to jump through. 
It's just accepting the free gift of God's grace. And as 1 John 1, 9 would say, when we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive them and cleanse them, us from all unrighteousness. If you made that decision today for the very first time, we'd love it if you would just let us know. We'd love to walk alongside you in this new life that you have in Jesus and walk with you as we together work to be ministers and messengers of reconciliation in the world around us. And for the rest of us this Easter season, I would invite you to sing this song or pray this prayer. God, you, because of Jesus, have reconciled me to yourself. You, where we were once at odds, you've put us at peace. So now, would you make me an instrument of that peace in the world?